Well, we want to welcome you back to another Sunday evening edition of Then and Now with Ed Stevens, where we're taking a look at our past so that we can better understand where it is that we are going in our future. Stay with us, continuing today in the book of Acts. Well, it is that one time once again for Ed Stevens to join us here in the virtual studio. My friend, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing really good. I really enjoyed that uh, seminar or conference they had down there at uh, Dave Curtis Church this weekend. Man, I, I had that streamed into my computer here live and watched the whole thing. So what, I don't think I missed more than a few minutes of it. Now, what did you think about the conference? Oh, I loved it. I thought it was all good. Excellent. Yeah, you know, the best part about it I liked was this morning during the worship service, just getting to see them pan the camera around and even seeing Don Preston, of all people, you know, out there in the midst of the congregation. Yeah, that was great. You know, it just, it was neat to see everybody there. And I was like, hmm, we actually kind of pulled this off, a big, humongous Preterist church service. Yeah, it was over 90 people in there. And uh, I I would suspect there's probably over 100 different people, you know, at... At any given time, but it's just amazing uh, to see that, and that's really uh, what we need to reproduce all over the world, and especially here in America, where there are so many preterist Christians. Uh, we need to start new churches, uh, like you're trying to do there right. in Southern California. I'm anxious to see that thing get off the ground and, well, and you know, start already, doing what uh, yeah. David Curtis is doing. We, we've already been meeting now for the last couple of months out in Murrieta on Friday evenings, and uh, just. You know, it's fun. It's it's actually neat to actually commit to getting together on a regular basis. And, you know, even if there are going to be some of those times where you're like, oh, I'd rather just stay at home on the couch, <laughs> you know, but actually getting out there and committing to meeting together, you know, with a few families and just see what the Lord will do with it. Oh, yeah, that's what it's all about. Uh, the fellowship especially is worth it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the Bible study, I mean, because you're going to learn an awful lot more than you could learn on your own just studying your own Bible because you're taking advantage of the insights of other people who have studied a lot of different things than you have. And so uh, it's worth it for the fellowship and the Bible study and and worshiping. There's a tremendous uh, depth and uh, and height of worship that you can achieve with with other people that you would never be able to achieve on your own by yourself. So there are just lots of benefits. And that's why Christ made the church mm-hmm. and instituted the church because of all the incredible benefits that it offers to those individual Christians uh, who would die on the vine if they're left to themselves. And that's unfortunately, sadly, the state of many preterists around the country. They don't have a fellowship where they can go and be edified and built up and encouraged and it's no surprise to see many of them fall away from the faith and, and leave not only preterism, but leave Christianity as well because they're just not being edified on a regular basis right. with other Christians. Yeah, you know, Jesus did not intend for the church to just be a bunch of people out there floating around aimlessly. You know, we, we are sheep. We are, we are a herd. We are a covenant body. We are, you know, we need to have other living stones around us so that we can smooth off our rough edges. That's right. You know. Yeah, I'm really delighted to see what Dave Curtis is doing down there. And and I just loved those messages that uh, Don Preston and Glenn Hill and uh, Rich Nemec. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right way to say his name, Nemec or Nemec, Nemec. Nemec. One of those two. Yeah, something like that. But uh, he was marvelous. I, I took a lot of notes. In fact, I got more notes from his lesson than I did from... From Don's and David, so uh, <laughs> he's a sharp guy, uh, medical doctor, uh, gastroenterologist, or something like that. Wow! But uh, he—he was just a marvelous bunch of good speeches and interesting stuff. Uh, Dave Curtis's lesson this morning on the uh, stewardship of uh, of the environment mm-hmm. almost persuaded me to become. An environmentalist and a tree hugger. So wait a sec. Does this does this, <laughs> does this mean you're going to go and sign up for Greenpeace? No, I don't think so. I don't know. No. I got one of their business cards right here. There was a lady outside of the grocery store last week that uh, 
almost had me convinced. I'm like, you know what, lady, we're preaching the same thing here. We have a responsibility to take care of this planet that God has given us dominion over. And she's like, yes. And I'm like, yeah, but we're coming from two different platforms. (laughs) That's right. We're coming from a biblical platform where Moses commanded several things in the law. In fact, I've got a whole list of those. When I went through the Mosaic Law one time, I tried to pick out all the different commandments and then categorize them according to, you know, what kind of commandment they were. And there's a whole bunch of them dealing with the environment and our natural resources and the land and how to take care of it. Uh, And, you know, Moses taught an awful lot about that. And then David Curtis, you know, made the point that not only is the land and our natural resources to be preserved and cultivated and and uh, conserved properly, but but even our own body, which houses our spirit, is the temple of the living God, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament especially commands us to be careful how we uh, treat our body, you know, and that we need to treat our body uh, rightly and take care of it uh, so that we'll live a long time, but not only live a long time, but live healthy Right. While we are alive, so that we're not plagued by disease and incapacitated, so that we can serve Christ and uh, and do well in His kingdom uh, and build His kingdom, and not be uh, incapacitated by disease and and feeling bad all the time. So that was an excellent speech. I, I was just surprised uh, to hear that at a preterist conference, but it's about time, you know. I mean, we we need to hear that. It's. It's the kind of stuff that uh, all of us as preterists need to fit into our worldview because it's very uh, consistent with a preterist worldview. Absolutely. Well, my friend, I'm going to go ahead and get out of the way and let you do what you do best. All right. Thanks, Mike. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last time we looked at Paul's arrest in the temple and his trial before the Sanhedrin with the high priest Hananias uh, officiating. We noticed that there were two opposing parties within the Sanhedrin, uh, the Sadducees versus the Pharisees. And, of course, we're in Acts chapter 23 here at Paul's trial. And Apostle Paul used his uh, affinity with the Pharisees to divide the assembly into two factions. And once this dissension broke out, it was impossible for the Sanhedrin under the control of the Sadducees, to develop a strong consensus of condemnation against Apostle Paul. And I don't know if Paul planned it that way. I doubt it. Uh, He was just taking advantage of a situation that would get him off the hook uh, temporarily there, but it worked. Uh, I think the Holy Spirit was in control of that whole situation and um, put it into Paul's mind and heart to say those things. Uh, And that's exactly what Jesus had promised. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you all things and guide you into all truth and bring to your remembrance uh, what I've taught you and disclose to you things to come. And he also said that, that the Holy Spirit would enable them or equip them to say what they needed to say in those moments when they were on trial before government leaders. He says, don't even think in advance what you're going to say. He says, it will be provided to you by the Holy Spirit. And so I think uh, we can see the Holy Spirit involved in this whole court session here before the Sanhedrin. And so Paul says exactly what the Holy Spirit is guiding him to say. And it's interesting to see how this works out. Uh, Once this... uh, dispute breaks out over the uh, resurrection, uh, which the Pharisees agreed with and the Sadducees, of course, denied, uh, that really created a, uh, a breakup in their discussion there and their proceedings. And it's amazing how the Holy Spirit providentially worked in that situation to rescue Paul and to put him into a position to present the gospel to not only all the Jewish and Roman rulers in Palestine, but later on in Rome as well, before Nero and his court. That dissension prevented the Sadducees from having a majority consensus by which they could condemn Paul to death. And so uh, by dividing the, the council up into 
warring factions there over the resurrection issue, uh, it really put a, a damper on their attempt to condemn Paul. The four Gospels in our New Testament show this same kind of conflict between the Sadducees and the Pharisees constantly going on throughout the first century. And it would not be surprising to find out that this very conflict between uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees had something to do with the writing of some of our New Testament books. In fact, a number of historical reconstructionists have suggested this very thing. Some believe that the Theophilus, to whom Luke addresses his two books, Luke and Acts, was a former high priest of the family of Ananus I. And this, of course, is my favorite theory. Uh, there's others, uh, but they're not as interesting, I don't think, as this one is. And so I've developed this as far as I can take it in my own understanding of uh, the history here. And I'm going to explain that today in our session. Hopefully we can get through that. Uh, if not, we'll continue it next week. But, but I want to explain some of the reasoning behind this theory that Theophilus was a former high priest and that he was uh, addressed by Luke in the two books that Luke wrote. Uh, and why that's significant and, and why Luke did that and how the Holy Spirit may have used that uh, material that Luke wrote to influence Theophilus and get the gospel out there into the Jewish high priest and uh, leadership. So we need to ask the question, who was this most excellent Theophilus that Luke writes to? Besides the reference to Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, and also in the Acts chapter 1 and other places, uh, the noble title of most excellent, uh, which is similar to your excellency or your honor that we see used in all addresses to other kings and government dignitaries uh, throughout the Bible and throughout other ancient writings, uh, this most excellent terminology is ascribed to two other persons in our New Testament, of course, all by Luke in the book of Acts. Uh, uh, he says, most excellent governor Felix in Acts chapter 23, verse 26, as well as in Acts 24, verse 3. Also, uh, he addresses uh, Festus, another Roman procurator or governor, as most excellent Festus in Acts chapter 26, verse 25. So we see that term, most excellent, used in reference to uh, Roman government officials especially. Uh, and in, in Josephus and other places, uh, uh, it seems like it's addressed to any government official. It doesn't have to be Roman. Uh, it could be any uh, official of any government uh, as well. Two similar uses are found in the writings of Josephus in his autobiography called The Life of Josephus, uh, section 430. He says this, and he dedicates his Antiquities book to a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. And he says there in his life, uh, O Epaphroditus, Thou most excellent of men, do I dedicate all this. And then another place in his book against Appian, uh, chapter 1, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, chapter 1, uh, verse 1, he says, most excellent Epaphroditus, again referencing that person that he's uh, dedicating his book to. Now, we don't know for sure who this Epaphroditus is, but uh, Whiston, in his note on Josephus here says that he can hardly be that Epaphroditus who was formerly secretary to Nero and was slain on the 14th of Domitian, in, slain on the 14th year of Domitian after he had been for a good while in banishment. So it doesn't seem likely that Josephus would have uh, uh, dedicated his books to that particular Epaphroditus who was a Roman, Roman official at that time in Rome. 
But it seems that it was probably another Epaphroditus, a freedman and procurator of Trojan, as says Grotius on Luke chapter 1, verse 3. Um, and so seems to be another guy, but both of them were evidently government officials and worthy of the title most excellent. Um, government officials were addressed in this way, and it could easily be either a Jewish or Roman official that Luke is referring to by that title, uh, such as a high priest. A high priest certainly would be in very high esteem, and it would not be inappropriate to refer to any high priest or former high priest as most excellent. And that's the way this theory uh, suggests it. Uh, they suggest that Theophilus is, in fact, a former high priest who ruled um, as high priest from about AD 37 to 41, about three or four years there. And this was, what, about uh, two decades, 20 years or so before Paul's trial in Jerusalem in 58 AD. So here is a former high priest, uh, according to this theory, that uh, was interceding on Paul's behalf uh, for some reason. And Luke is writing the book to help inform Theophilus about the history of, of Christians so that Theophilus can go to bat for Apostle Paul. Now, we might ask, why in the world would a, a former high priest want to go to bat for Apostle Paul and help the Christians in any way? Well, we're going to discuss that. I think there's a good reason why that might have occurred. Uh, and let's talk about that. There were several rival high priestly families throughout the first century. Uh, the Bothian were one of them, and I've heard it said as Bothusian. Uh, but James Vanderkam and his book on the high priest, which I believe is probably one of the most authoritative scholarly uh, books on the high priesthood out there, if, if not the highest, best one, uh, certainly among the top three, uh, I think it's the best. Uh, I would put it right up there at the top. But he pronounces it uh, Bothian. Uh, so Bothusian is probably not correct. I've been using Bothusian, but uh, it's Bothus is the name of the guy that was the family of high priest that we're talking about. And it's referred to as the Bothian family. That was one of the rival high, family, high priest families, uh, along with the Ananus family that we're going to see a lot more about uh, in coming days because there's at least three more of them that's going to show up in the history here from 58 A.D. down to uh, the end of, of uh, Judea in 70 A.D. And then the third family, of course, is this Ananias who is in power at the very time that we're uh, looking at the book of Acts here in chapter 23, Ananias was the high priest at the time Paul was tried in Rome before the Sanhedrin. I'm, I'm sorry, in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin. Uh, these three families accounted for at least 15 of the 25 high priests that ruled from the birth of Christ in 5 BC down to the outbreak of the revolt in AD 66. So there's about 25 high priests that cover that period of time. That's about 70 years. And 15 of those 25 high priests were from one of these three families, either the Bothian, the Ananus, or the Ananias family. Now, I, I realize that uh, it's really confusing to hear Ananus and Ananias uh, because they're very similar. In fact, in the Greek they're even more similar, and the Hebrew, very similar. So it's it's hard to distinguish between the two. And uh, for convenience sake, most English translators have tried to make a big distinction between them by spelling them differently. Uh, and but in the Hebrew and the Greek, there's not that much distinction. But it is two different families, and so we'll refer to them as the Ananus family and the Ananias family. 
these three families accounted for a lot of the high priests that ruled for this 70-year period from the birth of Christ down to the revolt in 66 AD. Several of the others who were not from these families were still tightly connected with one or more of those families. And so even though they may not have been of that flesh and blood of one of those three families, they were still very, very friendly to and tightly connected with and supportive of one of those three families, if not more than one of them. Uh, It's interesting that the Pharisees were occasionally able throughout this period to get some of their associates into power. But most of the time, the high priest was dominated by the more wealthy and powerful Sadducees. And if you'd like to do some more study on all this, uh, I would recommend James C. Vanderkim's book entitled From Joshua to Caiaphas, High Priest After the Exile. And it's published by Fortress Press back in 2004. Uh, That's eight years ago. Excellent book. Uh, In fact, I would say it's indispensable to anybody who wants to get a grasp of of the uh, inner dealings of of the Jewish people and Jewish leadership especially uh, during that period leading up to the revolt in 70 AD. He does a marvelous amount of study into the background history and developments of the culture there in Judea at that time. There's also an excellent list of these high priests with some discussion about them in the back of F.F. Uh, F. Bruce's book, Israel and the Nations. Now, we have that book on our book list on our website. And so if you'd like to get a copy of that book, I highly recommend it. Uh, all the books on our book list are highly recommended. I don't put them on there lightly. Uh, if they're on our list, uh, it's because they're very useful and helpful for us in our studies, especially our historical studies. So F.F. Uh, F. Bruce's book, Israel and the Nations, is available on our website at www.preterist.org. For our study here, I have reproduced part of the list that F.F. F. Bruce has in his uh, appendix, uh, and it's even color-coded for you. So you want to be sure and get the, the uh, lesson outline for this particular podcast because I've got uh, those high priests listed out here with the dates that they ruled, And I've got them color-coded according to their family so that you can pick out one of these three families real easily and see which high priest were a part of which family. makes it real easy for you, so uh, be sure and get this PDF of this lesson outline so you have that in front of you as you listen to the podcast. And I know that you don't have that in front of you right now, so I'm going to have to explain it a little bit more uh, and and talk about uh, how it's... Um, uh, structured here. Uh, Those of you who are listening live at this point, of course, those of you who are listening to it later will have uh, the notes in front of you. But you'll want to notice all the light blue highlights here on this list of high priests. The ones that have the light blue highlights are those who are part of the Ananus family. And the ones who have the Fuchsia, I guess it is, or violet or pink. I guess pink is a better, it's kind of a darker pink. Uh, They're the uh, Bothean family of priests. And then the ones that have the green, of course, or light green, uh, it's almost like a lime green color. Uh, That's the Ananias or Ananias family. Ananias, son of Nadeba. So I've got those all color-coded in the list. And we'll notice also that after uh, Ananias ruled in 58 AD, he was replaced by Ishmael, the son of Fabi. And um, then there's another guy, Joseph Kabi, who's the son of Simon, that rules for another couple of years. And then in 62 AD, we see the Ananus family get one of their uh, family members back into power. And then uh, he only rules for three months, though. He gets into trouble because he takes action against James, the brother of Jesus, kills him, arrests him, and kills him. 
And that upsets a lot of people in Jerusalem, uh, probably a lot of Christians there who uh, took him to court over it and uh, complained to Agrippa about it. And so Agrippa uh, revoked his high priesthood and turned it over to a guy by the name of Jesus, who was a son of Damnaeus. And he lasted about one year, and then Agrippa turned it over to another guy by the name Jesus, who was a son of Gamaliel, evidently a Pharisee family, got one of their family members into power. And as soon as Jesus, son of Gamaliel, took power, uh, there was open riots in the streets uh, between him and the family of uh, the former high priest, Jesus, son of Damnaeus. So there's a lot of rivalry going on here. They just did not like uh, to be put out of power, and they protested it violently in the streets when they did get put out of power. And then after these two Jesus guys uh, were high priests, the third guy uh, after them uh, is Matthias, who's son of Theophilus, son of Ananus, uh, grandson of Ananus. Uh, and so we see uh, two more family members of the Ananus family get into power after uh, Ananias did, after Ananias was in power. One of those is not only the brother of Theophilus, uh, but but is the son. Matthias was the son of Theophilus. And it's interesting that this Matthias, who was the son of Theophilus and grandson of Ananus, was in power at the time the revolt broke out and was not replaced until two years into the war. And he's replaced by Phineas, son of Samuel, who some people think is another um, uh, one of those Bothusian or Bothian uh, family members. Uh, wasn't sure, you know, but but there's some speculation about that. Interesting how all this works out. But anyway, that's the list that we've got here in our lesson outline, and you want to refer to that as we talk more about Theophilus in particular, because I think Theophilus is playing a role here in this dispute between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the Ananus family is trying to get Ananias back out of power so that they can put one of their um, cronies back into power. And I think that's the background here but behind some of these uh, uh, things. And it may very well be the background behind why the books of Luke and Acts were written. And let me explain that a little bit more here. Um, uh, there's two references to Theophilus in this list of high priests, of course, in AD 37 when Theophilus himself was high priest, and then later in AD 65 when his son, Matthias, became high priest. Theophilus reigned for about four years while his son, Matthias, reigned for only three years. But that was unusual in those days, because normally uh, one or two years is about all uh, they were allowed to serve as high priest before they were replaced. They didn't want to give them very much time in there because they started building up their power structure too much, and they were unbeatable at that point. So uh, there was a lot of very careful manipulation behind the scenes to get them back out of power before they could build up a, a strong power base. And I want to focus attention on two of these rival families, uh, the Ananus family, which Theophilus was a part of, versus the Ananias family that was in power at the time Paul was tried in Rome. And especially I want to focus on Theophilus, who was from this family of Ananus. Uh, when Paul mentioned the resurrection issue at his trial, the Pharisees immediately rallied to his defense. Now, that is a little surprising to us as Christians uh, when we see so much bitterness and hostility 
exchange between the Christians and Pharisees in the past. Uh, as we look through the book of Acts and even in the Gospels, uh, Jesus and the Pharisees duked it out on a number of occasions. So it's kind of surprising to see the Pharisees take Apostle Paul's uh, defense here. But we need to remember several things. Uh, Apostle Paul claims to have been a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And he doesn't say that he used to be. He says he is a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And so right up to the very end, he was still uh, keeping the faith, keeping all the jots and tittles, just like the other apostles were, in order to open the doors for the gospel, uh, because they knew that the Jews would never listen to them if they broke the law, which was the law of the land in Judea. And so the lawbreakers would never have been listened to. In fact, the lawbreakers would have been locked up in jail and put out of out of uh, commission completely. So it was uh, to the gospel's advantage to be keepers of every jot and tittle until that law was all fulfilled and taken out of the way at 70 AD. And then it could no longer be kept and it was not an issue after that. But but up until this time, uh, it was perfectly appropriate for Apostle Paul to call himself a Pharisee. And his identification with the Pharisees at his trial uh, would probably be one of the things that saved his life uh, because it got him out off the hook there uh, because it created a controversy between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which uh, divided them and made it impossible for the Sadducees to get a consensus of condemnation against Apostle Paul. But the Pharisees were looking for ways to discredit and remove Ananias and his Sadducean party from their controlling position in the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were not in agreement with Christianity in generally, uh, in general, but but they did agree with the resurrection idea, and were more than willing to use the unfair treatment of Paul by Ananias and the Sadducees in order to strengthen their own Pharisaic power base. They saw the extremely wealthy and powerful Sadducees as being more of a threat to them than were the poor, persecuted sect of Christians. So they would have had no difficulty using the ill treatment of Christians by the Sadducees as an excuse to challenge the Sadducees and weaken the Sadducees in the Sanhedrin. And so I think that's what's at, at play right here in this very trial of Apostle Paul. However, I do not believe the Sadducee versus Sadducee versus Pharisee conflict at Paul's trial in Jerusalem was the only factor involved in the rivalry between the various ruling families, nor even the primary factor. Uh, there's much more going on here than just a Sadducee Pharisee dispute about the resurrection. Party politics was involved. Uh, of course, we in America have no clue what party politics are all about. Uh, I say that facetiously. Uh, we certainly can understand uh, what party politics are all about, uh, Democrats and, and Republicans. Uh, uh, and that's kind of the stuff that was going on here between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And it was more likely this factor, this party politics, which moved Theophilus to get involved in Apostle Paul's defense against the reigning high priest at that time, Ananias. No significant evidence that Theophilus was a Pharisee, but rather that he was more likely a Sadducee. Uh, several members of his family were Sadducees. We know Caiaphas was, and most likely his father, Ananus, was a Sadducee. And we know also that... Uh, Ananus II, his brother, was a Sadducee as well. Uh, but that doesn't prove that uh, Theophilus was a Sadducee. It just proves that that was uh, a likely possibility. Uh, so if he was in the same party as Ananias, we have to ask the question, why would he work against Ananias 
by helping Paul. Well, do we ever, do we ever see any Republicans working against other Republicans in our country, in our politics? Nah, never, right? Uh, do we ever see a Democrat work against another Democrat? Of course we do. Uh, that's what party politics is all about, especially at primary time, which we're coming up on here in Pennsylvania. This coming Tuesday, we're going to be voting in our primaries. Uh, and man, there is a lot of internecine strife going on uh, within the Republican Party and within the Democrat Party uh, over these local politicians. Uh, it's dirty politics as usual. It's a shame. But that is the kind of politics that we're talking about here in the first century. So if Theophilus was in the same party as Ananias, uh, he could easily be working against Ananias simply because he wants to unseat Ananias and, the, and his family and his dynasty and replace Ananias as high priest by one of his own family, the family of Ananus. And I think that's probably uh, what's going on here, and that may be a good explanation of why the books of Luke and Acts were written, uh, because Theophilus may have wanted to help Apostle Paul to expose the the uh, the evil of Ananias and to get Ananias out of power, and so he needed every stitch of evidence he could get about Christianity to use in Paul's defense uh, to unseat Ananias, his rival high priest. Each family was more concerned about their own power than they were about their particular political party. The chief priests were all rivals, regardless of their party affiliation, and were constantly on the watch for any opportunity to knock down their rivals and put themselves in the top position of power. It was all about power and control of the temple and its vast treasury of gold and silver. And of course, uh, our poly party politics here in this country have nothing to do with power and money, I'm sure. Uh, we would never uh, do that kind of thing here in our party politics. I can't imagine such a thing uh, facetiously. Theophilus saw how the dispute with the Pharisees weakened Ananias' power in the Sanhedrin. Here was an opportunity for the Ananias family, represented by Theophilus, to diminish the power of Ananias and to augment their own power at the same time. His rivalry against Ananias is more than enough to explain why he would have sided with Paul for convenience sake. Like the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so that seems to be what's happening here. Theophilus uses the enemy of Ananias as his friend to go against Ananias and use Paul's case to help unseat his rival Ananias and replace him with someone friendly to the Ananias family. I believe something like this is involved here in Acts chapter 23, and we can see additional evidence pointing in that direction when we notice that Ananias was in fact removed from the high priesthood not long after the trial of, of Apostle Paul. Very interesting. Uh, the new high priest who replaced Ananias was Ishmael ben Fiabi. And pronouncing these Hebrew names is tough for a Texan, let me tell you. Even a Texan who studied uh, modern Hebrew and Mishnahic Hebrew and biblical Hebrew, uh, it's still tough. My Hebrew instructor at uh, Adelphi University in Long Island, New York, used to laugh every time I pronounced some of those Hebrew words. I mean, he just about rolled on the floor laughing. And he would intentionally call on me to pronounce some of these words just so that the class could enjoy my Texas accent. <laughs> and that was a hoot for me as well. I enjoyed it, uh, uh, em, uh, embellishing it with my Texas accent. The new high priest who replaced Ananias was Ishmael 
Ben Fiabi. He ruled about two or three years from about 59 or 58 AD to 61. And this was at the time, by the way, when Paul was finishing up his imprisonment there in, in Caesarea and on his way to Rome. Uh, on his voyage there, of course, he was shipwrecked and had to stay over the wintertime on the island of Malta. And so it was not until uh, very early 61, after the winter, uh, that he was able to get to Rome and uh, begin his two-year stay there. And so this is, uh, this is when Fiabi, or Ishmael ben Fiabi, was ruling as high priest. Neither he nor his successor, who was Joseph ben Simon, seem to have been related to either one of the two main rival families of Ananias or Ananus, although Joseph may have been related to the Bothean family, as we noticed before. Uh, however, in AD 62, while Paul was in Rome awaiting trial, Ananus came to power as high priest and ruled for three months. He immediately arrested James and some of his companions and had James killed there. And this is while Paul was in prison in Rome. Uh, and from this presumptuous and illegal action, because he had no authority to put James to death uh, without a fair trial before the Sanhedrin. And he did that unilaterally on his own authority without uh, calling a Sanhedrin and without uh, getting approval for that uh, from the Roman governor who was not yet there. Uh, the governor was on his way to Judea and had not arrived yet. And so Agrippa, who had just appointed him three months earlier, deposed him at the end of only three months of rule as high priest for his illegal action of killing James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, it's amazing here uh, how God uses the Roman Empire to protect uh, his Christian people and to keep more of them from being killed by the Jews. Two more high priests that were not related to the Ananus family served for about a year each, and we mentioned those, Jesus, son of Damnaeus, and Jesus ben Gamaliel. Then Matthias, the son of Theophilus, came to power. He is the last of the Ananus dynasty to rule as high priest before the revolt. He was appointed in AD 64, probably just before the Feast of Passover, and a few months before the Neuronic persecution broke out. And so he was the high priest in power at the time of the Neuronic persecution, which is referred to in, in the Gospels as the Great Tribulation. And so he was of the Ananus family. And it's interesting that the Great Tribulation broke out while another member of Ananus family was in power. Ananus was the one who arrested Jesus and had him crucified. And it was his grandson, Matthias, and it was his, actually, actually it was his son, Ananus, the second, who arrested James, the brother of Jesus, and killed him. And then it was his grandson, Matthias, uh, under whom the Neuronic persecution broke out, which uh, just about devastated all the Christians. There weren't many Christians left alive after that Neuronic persecution. Uh, and Jesus tells us that in Matthew 24. He says, unless those days have been cut short, none of the elect would have been left to, uh, to be rescued at the end of the age. So... Uh, Matthias, of course, is the last of the Ananus family to, to serve as high priest. And he was appointed just before uh, Passover in 64 AD and remained in office at the time of the revolt in 66 AD. This last descendant of the Ananus family was the son of Theophilus, 
and the grandson of Ananus I. The fact that Theophilus was able to get his brother and son into the office of high priest not long after Ananus had been deposed, Ananias had been deposed, uh, in spite of the fact that Ananias still wielded a lot of power in Jerusalem all the way down to the destruction of Jerusalem. And he was, he was still a very, very powerful figure. In fact, his son was uh, the Sagan of the temple, the, the uh, captain of the temple guard at the time the revolt broke out in 66 AD. So he's still a very powerful figure, even though he was not still in high priesthood. But this tells us a lot about the incredible level of power struggle that was going on throughout this period of time. All of this certainly points to the strong possibility that Luke was writing to one of the rival leaders in Jerusalem at that time when Ananias was the pinnacle was at the pinnacle of his power. The most rival family at that time against Ananias would certainly have been the Ananus family. And the most likely representative of that family, of the Ananus family at that time, would have been Theophilus and Ananus, both of whom were sons of Ananus I, who had been the high priest at the time Jesus was crucified. Very, very powerful families. Uh, and they were in constant conflict with each other, constant rivalry, constant competition with each other. And they would stoop at nothing. Uh, you know, they would stoop to anything uh, to uh, depose their rival high priest. Two decades before Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, Theophilus had been high priest for about four years, uh, 37 AD to 41. Three more members of the Ananus family served as high priest after that, of course. Uh, that was Matthias, uh, ben Ananias. I'm sorry, Matthias, ben Ananus. And then Ananus, ben Ananus. And then Matthias, ben Theophilus, uh, grandson of Ananus. Notice that, it, that last one. He was the son of Theophilus and grandson of Ananus. This shows that the family of Ananus continued to be serious contenders for the high priesthood right up to the very end, especially at the very time that Ananias, uh, ben Medebus, was in the pinnacle of his power. Right down to the very end of AD 66, we see these two families constantly challenging each other, trying to regain or maintain their power over their rivals. And so, uh, they would have used the Christians to their advantage uh, in order to unseat their rival high priest. And that seems to be what's happening here uh, at, a, at Apostle Paul's trial and his imprisonment in Caesarea. Uh, Theophilus may have uh, gone to his defense, and Luke writes the books of Luke and Acts in order to help Theophilus in his defense of Apostle Paul uh, with the hopes of unseating Ananias and getting him out of power. Uh, that's the theory that some historical reconstructionists have suggested, and I think there's a lot of evidence uh, to support it. I don't know if there's any way to prove it and establish it as fact, but uh, there's certainly... Uh, a good case there to support it as a viable historical possibility. Um, it's interesting that Josephus talks about this rivalry between these high priests. Uh, if you've got uh, his antiquities in book 20, sections 180 through 181, or if you've got the Whiston edition, it would be uh, antiquities, book 20, chapter 8, section 8. Uh, he talks about this high priesthood rivalry and what happened uh, to each other uh, as they were doing this. 
It's not without significance, I think, that Ananias' term as high priest ended not many months after his unfair treatment of Apostle Paul in that trial there in Jerusalem. When the new high priest, Ishmael, came to power, the rivalry really heated up, uh, especially out in the streets. Uh, There was violent clashes between the rival high priest families. Evidently, Ananias' party felt disenfranchised and reacted violently against their successors. According to Josephus, there was open hostility in the streets of Jerusalem with youngsters of both families throwing rocks at each other. So it's no stretch of credulity to suggest that Theophilus was using Paul's case as a tool to unseat Ananias and his associates. Nor is it any surprise to see two more of the Ananias family become high priests soon after this. So if this theory is correct, it means that Theophilus was somewhat successful in reducing the power of Ananias and strengthening the power of his own family Uh, and that one of the tools he used to do it may have been uh, not only the unfair treatment of Apostle Paul, but the evidence uh, uh, that Luke provided in his two books uh, of Luke and Acts. Now, a good exercise to test this whole theory would be to read back through both Luke and Acts to see if the narrative actually fits this scenario to see if if Luke writes in such a way as to support the thesis that he's writing for a former high priest who is going to defense of Apostle Paul in order to unseat uh, Ananias from his power of, of high priesthood. Uh, did, li- did Luke write in such a way as to help the cause of Theophilus against the ri- rival high priest? And did the Holy Spirit writing through Luke and Paul use this rivalry as an opportunity to get the gospel into the hands of all the Jewish leaders? It seems clear that God was always providentially using this rivalry to accomplish his own predetermined predetermined, man, I can't say that word, Uh, predetermined plan to spread the gospel throughout every level of society in the Roman world of that day and to get the written gospel of Luke into the hands and into the eyesight of those who would probably never have read the New Testament documents otherwise. And so uh, it's amazing how God would have used Theophilus to uh, to do this, and how he would have used Luke to write things for Theophilus to get the gospel into his mind and heart, and at the very top level of the Jewish government. Was the Ananus family so desperate to maintain their power that they would even help a lowly Christian? if it would somehow feather their own nest? Did God use their greed and lust for power against them? I think the evidence from Josephus would answer those questions in the affirmative. Another point that we don't want to overlook in our survey of the book of Acts here is Paul's statement on trial under oath that there is about to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In Acts chapter 24, verse 15, he said that, that there is about to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, and that the judgment was also about to be, Acts 24, verse 25. This closely matches Paul's preaching to the Athenians eight years previously about God having fixed a day in which he is about to judge the world. Acts 17, verse 31. These statements are interesting for a lot of reasons, not only because 
of their affirmations. Excuse me, man, I had some chili, uh, chili and hot dogs, and uh, <clears throat> it's uh, they're revisiting you. It's not staying down real well. I'm, I'm, well, it's staying down, but it's it's not uh, uh, digesting properly. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, not eaten that chili and hot dog, but. Mm. Uh, these statements about the resurrection about to be and judgment about to be are interesting for a lot of reasons, not only because of their affirmations of imminency, but because, uh, and even more so in regard to the, the nature of this about to be resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. If Paul was thinking of a collective body of Jewish believers being raised out of covenantally dead Judaism, why would he mention both the righteous and the wicked being raised? Those who teach the collective body resurrection view have not been able to satisfactorily explain Paul's language here. If this is the same concept of resurrection that Paul preached everywhere, then he could not have been teaching a collective body resurrection concept anywhere else uh, since it is clear here in Acts 24:15 that the resurrection would include both the righteous and the wicked and notice this uh, this resurrection here is is what is about to occur and, and notice he doesn't say that it's uh, already going on as a dying rising reciprocity process uh, he says it's some event that is about to occur, and it's going to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That does not fit the collective body view, but it perfectly fits the idea of disembodied souls in Hades being raised out of Hades for the judgment that was just about to occur. Just like we see pictured in the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew chapter 25. This was not a collective body resurrection out of covenantal sin death for only the Christians, the righteous ones. This resurrection included both the righteous and the wicked. The disembodied souls of all the remaining dead ones in Hades were raised up out of Hades and judged at the parousia. Matthew 25, again, is a good example of, of what that judgment was like. It, it judged both the resurrected dead uh, who were wicked and the resurrected dead uh, who were righteous. Since this was the concept of resurrection that Paul preached everywhere, and in fact at his trial he mentions that, that he agrees with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees certainly understood his concept of resurrection and agreed with it. Otherwise, they would not have taken his case uh, and taken up his defense. And Paul doesn't indicate that he differs with them in their concept of resurrection. And this was the very concept that the Pharisees had. They had the idea that both the righteous and the wicked would be raised out of Hades on the last day and judged. Since this was the concept that, that Paul preached everywhere, he says so in this very context, it means that all his epistles that mention the resurrection must be teaching this same concept of a resurrection of the dead out of Hades and not a collective body of Christians uh, being raised out of sin-dead Judaism. This is an important point that we need to nail down right here in our study of Acts. It will help us later as we study all of Paul's epistles in which he mentions the resurrection of the dead ones, plural, out of Hades that was about to occur at the imminent parousia. Now, I know this is probably going to raise a few uh, questions, and uh, I certainly would love to address those in future podcasts. So if this uh, has shocked you or surprised you or uh, made you uh, curious and want more information, uh, certainly email me this week and uh, – Ask me some questions about it, and I'll try to clarify it and deal with it more next week in our podcast. Uh, my email address is preterist1 
That's just the number one. It's not spelled out. Preterist one at preterist.org. So what you're saying is it's not like the Italian prophet. That's right. Okay. Preteristoni. Okay. Preterist one, the number one. All right, Ed. And um, any uh, new things going on in your ministry there? Uh, How's your progress coming along with your books? Oh, real good. I'm uh, just loving this research we're doing here for this first century events book. All this stuff that I'm presenting here is going to go into the, the next edition of that book, and I'm really anxious to get through studies, uh, go all the way down to 70 A.D., uh, hopefully in the next year or less. Well, I hope I, I certainly hope you can get this thing published and on Amazon.com because the historical data, again, is something you're not going to find uh, really anywhere else all in one volume. Now, where you've got all the Jewish events, the Roman events, and the Christian events put in one continuous sequence, uh, I've just been hard-pressed to find anybody who's done that, Mm. and especially drawing all the material out of Josephus and putting it in in sequence is is a really helpful study, and it just blessed my socks off, and I can't wait till it's done, uh, because I think it'll really help all of us, uh, no matter whether we take a collective body view or or, uh, individual body view of the resurrection. This is going to be extremely valuable information to help us as we interpret the book of Revelation. Uh, Absolutely. Come from. Absolutely. Alrighty, my friend. Well, we will see you back here next week for another edition of Then and Now. You are tuned to listener-supported AD70.net. We are Christian radio from a slightly different point of view. Putting sanity back into Christianity is what we are doing. If you'd like to help us take this message of fulfillment to the uttermost parts of the earth, just head over to AD70.net and click on support to find out what you can do. As well, you can find a copy of this and all of our previous live broadcasts by simply pointing your browser to thepodcast.org. Once again, that's thepodcast.org. We'll see you back here next time. 